Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program covering a wide variety of topics of interest to people with vision loss. I'm Nancy Goodman Torpy. And I'm Pete Torpy. Whoa, dogs to the left of me, dogs to the right of me, dogs all around me. There seem to be more and more service dogs around these days. But are they all real bona fide service dogs? We'll speak with Denny Elliott, a blind professor of media ethics, about what's changed, the implications, and what we can do about it. But first for our tip of the week. This week's tip comes from Denny Elliott. You know, I'm I'm thinking of a blind audience primarily. You know, I mean, if this were a general audience, I'd say my tip is don't fake disability to get access for your pet. Right. It's a defect of character, if nothing else. In terms of a blind community, I would say understand the difference between a legitimate service dog and one that's not. And don't be shy about telling people that it's inappropriate to pass their pet off as a service dog. And it harms the disability community. And there are blind people who have non-guide dog pets. Sure. So, you know, just because you're blind doesn't mean you can't have a regular pet dog in addition or instead of a guide dog. That's true. And a pet dog is not a guide dog. And all of our pets should be providing emotional support. But that doesn't mean that they're mitigating a symptom of disability. And we'll be talking much more about some of the issues surrounding service animals and how common they've become in recent years. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. Let's start by meeting Denny and learning about her work in the field of media ethics. This is Denny Elliott. I'm the Pointer Jamison Chair in Media Ethics and Press Policy at the University of South Florida. But I also write about ethics and service dogs. And I gather you're a service dog user yourself. Right. I've been using guide dogs since 2000, and I'm on my fourth guide dog right now, um, the second one from Guiding Eyes for the Blind. Would you like to introduce your guide dog? My guide dog is asleep on her little bed behind my chair, uh, so uh, uh, she says hello, but silently, as most guide dogs do. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing how they train them never to bark. Well, she will bark if she's asked, but... Um, My guide dog, Guiding Eyes Koala, like most guide dogs, are trained not to bark and not to interfere with other people or other dogs. And that's part of what makes them a joy to work with. And what kinds of topics do you teach in media ethics? That sounds very interesting. Well, you know, now that we are all producers of media through things like your podcast, I teach everybody to be a responsible producer and consumer of communication that we send out over the internet. That sounds like an appropriate topic for these times with all the stories we hear about fake news and people producing their own content. 
Right. And, and people, uh, you know, claiming that things are fake news without ever explaining really what that means. And so one of the things that I help students, graduate students and undergraduate students learn is how to think about the truth and accuracy of what they're reading or listening to. Both are important. Eyes on Success is made possible in part by our corporate partners. Underwriting pairs the impact of targeted marketing with the integrity of community goodwill. Learn more by sending an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. This week's focus topic is the history and practice of using service animals. So today we wanted to focus on service animals and how a lot more people seem to be using quote-unquote service animals these days. But to get us started, it sounds like you have quite a lot of experience with service animals. You said you had four dogs. When did you start using a guide dog? I started using a guide dog in 2000. So I've been using a guide dog for 20 years uh, to help me travel safely, either in the neighborhood or across the country or well, across the world, actually. I travel internationally with my dog. But you've been blind a lot longer than that. So do you feel that having the guide dog has been a real asset in your travels? Oh, there's such a difference between traveling with a cane and traveling with a dog. With a cane, you find obstacles and then work your way around them. With a guide dog, you often don't even know there's an obstacle there because the dog just moves you so smoothly around any obstacle, living or not, um, that might get in your way. Do you ever have need to use a cane at all? Do you switch back and forth sometimes, or are you very reliant on the dog these days? I use the cane between dogs, and occasionally I use a sighted guide. My partner and I will go out to dinner, well, pre-COVID days, we would go out to dinner. (laughs) (laughs) I do go out without my guide dog using a cane or using a sighted guide. So you've been using a guide dog, you just said, for 20 years. How has that experience changed over time? Boy, it has changed so much. Back in 2000, I remember my first guide dog seemed startled whenever there was another blind person with a guide dog, like getting on the airplane uh, that we were getting on. She was just so unused to seeing other dogs assisting people with disabilities. And in fact, the number of guide dog teams in this country is about 10,000. And that really hasn't changed. But the number of dogs that are supposedly service dogs has increased in amazing numbers. Yeah, we don't, either one of us, use a service animal. But when we go to airports, we frequently see service animals. And now that you mention it, I don't know that I've ever seen a guide dog for the blind at an airport. But I've certainly been seeing lots of other dogs. Right. Well, and what happened with that is that guide dogs were the first recognized assistive animals. The seeing eye was the first guide dog school in the country, and that opened in 1929. And so guide dogs have been on the scene in very small numbers since then and have had 
doors and laws and everything open to them because it's so clear what assistance they provide and about how well they're trained so that they don't interfere with anybody else. And they do get a high degree of training. And many of those schools are licensed through some agency. There are 12 guide dog schools in the country, and they all belong to the International Federation of Guide Dog Schools, which has very high standards. Um, Most of the guide dog schools breed their own puppies. And literally from the time the puppy is born, she is being trained to to live the kind of life that she's going to live as a guide dog and to act in certain ways. And guide dogs don't even meet their blind partners until they're, oh, two years old or so. And so they've had two years of training before they even train with their blind handler. And then the blind handler and guide dog have anywhere from two weeks to four weeks together of intensive training before they're allowed out in the world together. Yeah, we've actually done a number of shows about guide dogs, and I think the first one we ever did was when we interviewed a woman who raised guide dog puppies, and she talked about everything. You know, she got it when it was weaned at six or eight weeks up until that two-year point. And then we've spoken with other people at various guide dog agencies about the subsequent training and, and experience. Well, I think that guide dogs have made a really important difference in the life of some blind people. Uh, there are you know, folks with visual impairments who just prefer to use a cane. It's a whole lot easier to fold up a cane at night than to take a dog out in a driving snowstorm because she's got to go out to pee. <laughs> so uh, I understand that. But dogs provide other kinds of assistance to people with disabilities, which is why they're referred to as service dogs. Guide dogs are one kind of service dogs, but there are service dogs that help people who um, don't have good use of their hands or limbs. They retrieve items. Um, There are dogs that are hearing alert dogs or that warn people that they're about to have a seizure or that they're Blood sugar has dropped too low for people who are diabetic. So dogs can perform a number of services, but that really has gotten out of hand. And what do you mean by that? Well, there are two things. One is that guide dog schools are under pretty strict controls in terms of what they say they do and what their dogs can do upon graduation. And less than 50% of the puppies who start out with the plan that they're going to be guide dogs actually make it, or less. I think 50% is kind of a high number myself. Service dog organizations don't have to be certified by anybody. People are allowed to privately train a dog to be a service dog. And for these other service dog organizations and people who privately train their own service dog, there's absolutely no way to determine that the dog does what it is purported to do or that the dog is suitable to be out in public. So in the United States, guide dogs have been sort of officially recognized as a reasonable means of accommodations for a long time. Is that right? 
Oh, right. In fact, during World War II, guide dogs had their own meat rations. Um, they've been uh, recognized as an important asset for uh, people who are blind or visually impaired um, since the 40s. I'm currently writing a book on ethics and guide dogs. And so I've been doing a lot of research on the history of guide dogs. And the first federal laws relating to guide dogs was actually in the 1940s. Wow. And that's not the same all over the world. In some parts of the world, I understand guide dogs aren't as well accepted into public venues. Well, yeah, that's a problem. There are some cultures that don't accept dogs, um, either for religious reasons or cultural reasons. And I know from having um, worked with graduate students in my dog law and ethics seminars uh, that in Iran, for example, uh, it can be illegal to have any kind of dog out in public. So that gets complicated. But in most Western countries, guide dogs um, are accepted. The International Federation of Guide Dog Schools has, I think, 93 members now. So there are guide dog schools uh, in different countries around the world. But in all of those, the government takes responsibility by certifying the guide dog schools as appropriate. And everyone knows that those dogs that graduate from those schools and the people who are trained to work with them both know what they're doing. We don't have that practice in the United States. So it sounds like in general, guide dogs have been kind of institutionalized as part of the culture and the acceptable means of accommodations for, for a long time. But something must have changed to allow these other quote-unquote service animals to be accepted in public venues. What all happened there? What happened in the 1990s uh, was that federal laws finally caught up in not just prohibiting discrimination against people with disabilities, but also talking about the proactive work that cities and states and businesses needed to do to accommodate people with disabilities. And in the 1990s, uh, in the enactment of various laws, including the Americans with Disabilities Act, the federal government began to try to explain what needed to be done to accommodate people who used assistive animals. And unfortunately, from the beginning, the rules and regulations were, I would say, too broad in talking about assistive animals. By 2010, the Americans with Disabilities Act was amended to say that service dogs were the only ones that were allowed. But I guess there wasn't a very clear definition of what a service dog was. Right. The qualifications now for what a service dog does is, first of all, uh, you, we have to start off with the person needs to have a life-altering disability. The second thing is that um, the service dog must help the person mitigate that disability in some way. That is, they must perform tasks or do work for the person who has disabilities. The other complication with the assistive animal laws 
is the appearance of emotional support animals, which also appeared on the scene that is in federal law in the mid 1990s. And unfortunately, those animals don't have to be trained to do anything. Well, you know, we were at an airport once a few years ago, and somebody had a very small dog with a bib on the dog that said it was an emotional support dog. And this person was calming the dog down. It's okay. We'll be getting on the plane soon. I'm like, which one had the emotional problem? You know, it's really confusing to the public when you see situations like that. Right. Well, and that's the problem both of people who are willing to pass off their pet as an animal assisting with a disability when it's not, and also the fact that there are dozens of online purveyors trying to sell certificates and medical documentation and anything you might need um, so that you can take your pet into a no pet zone, like in an airline cabin or Um, in a no pet condo or residence hall at the dorm. The online purveyors provide fake documentation so that people can take their pets someplace where they're just not allowed. So besides being just plain annoying to the general public and to people who are following the rules and say, well, shoot, I didn't bring my dog. What are the real downsides of that? Well, the biggest downside is that Dogs that are not trained to be out in public who haven't passed what's called a public access test pose a danger to public safety. They pose a danger in a number of ways. First of all, if the animal, if the dog has not been vaccinated, the dog can pass along various diseases, both to other dogs um, and um, some to people as well. The second thing is that an aggressive dog is really dangerous in an airplane. Uh, There are cases that have been in the news um, of people who have been severely injured by a biting dog. Uh, The case that always horrifies me is there was a passenger in the window seat and a supposed emotional support dog in the center seat with his person and the dog became aggressive and started biting the person in the window seat in the face. You don't escape from that. You can't escape from that. So there's a danger to public safety. The other problem is that it raises more problems for people with disabilities. You know, people with disabilities have only had civil rights officially in this country since the 1970s. And it wasn't until the 1990 Americans with Disabilities Act that we really had blanket protections. And so now we're in a situation of where people are looking at our guide dogs and saying, oh yeah, right, where did you buy that vest? Did that come from the internet? Or how can you prove that that's a real guide dog? And people with disabilities don't need that level of suspicion in our lives. We have enough to deal with. Right, right. So has there been any push to regulate service animals a little bit more strictly so that we can avoid some of these problems? Yes and no. First, there's confusion among the federal laws. 
The Americans with Disabilities Act, for example, doesn't recognize emotional support dogs. So people who have real disabilities and dogs that really assist with those disabilities can go into businesses and restaurants and theaters and places like that. But the Air Carrier Access Act allows people with emotional support animals to bring them onto airplanes. So one of the things I'm seeing now in federal law is a move toward acceptance of the Americans with Disabilities Act definition. The Department of Transportation is right now considering just dropping emotional support animals and sticking to legitimate service dogs, which I think would be a really good move. And I guess that's kind of a pragmatic stance on their part because they're running into more and more problems on airplanes with some of these animals. Oh, yeah, they're getting sued. They're liable if a animal that they allow on their airplane hurts somebody else. But where I think the real problem is in this country is that unlike other countries, in the U.S., we depend on what's called credible verbal assurance. That means anybody can claim to have a disability. Anybody can claim that their dog performs work for them or does tasks to mitigate their disability. And because of the really important civil rights that people with disabilities have, that can't be questioned. And I think that's a real problem. You can't just walk into the DMV and request a handicapped parking placard by claiming to have a disability. You've got to show medical documentation. In the same way, I think that people with disabilities who want to use service dogs out in public need to be able to have medical documentation for the disability and show that their dog has passed a public access test. That happens automatically with guide dog schools around the country. Mm -hmm. And I think that it would not be difficult for states to take up that cause just as they have with handicapped parking placards and make sure that people who have service dogs out in public have legitimate service dogs. So is there anything the general population can do? Well, I think that everybody in the disability community and all of the friends of people in the disability community can show a little activism here. When we see inappropriate dogs, or I guess other animals, out in public, if that animal is barking, is acting aggressively, uh, is trying to attack my service dog, which has happened more than once, I think that every one of us should, should in a very loud voice say, that dog does not belong in public. That dog is not appropriate in public. And I'm kind of hoping that if we can embarrass enough of these fraudsters, that they'll start leaving Fido at home. Oh, those would be fighting words in Colorado. Dogs are allowed everywhere. They're not allowed inside a restaurant with indoor seating, but you always see them at the outdoor seating. And you'll see people bringing dogs into Home Depot. The other day, I saw someone come in with a goat in defense of all of these dog owners in Colorado. The dogs here are remarkably well-behaved. 
And I think it would be fine if the U.S. were like many of the Western European countries where well-behaved dogs are welcome everywhere. That would be fine. The problem is, is that the dogs that we see so often in public that interfere with legitimate guide dogs, in my case, are not well-trained and they don't belong in public. What else do you think could be done? So I think that people can get educated. I'm surprised at the number of people who are just confused. And it's not just members of the public or people in the, in the disabled community, but gatekeepers, the airline attendants and restaurant owners who don't know when it's okay to say to somebody, you can't bring that dog in here. And when it's not. And so I think we all need to get better educated about this. And the federal government needs to get its act together and get consistent about assistive animal law. Well, hopefully, if more of us begin to speak up, things may slowly change in the future. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. Now for this week's final item, how to find some of Denny Elliott's writings and how to contact her directly. If people are interested in pursuing this topic a little bit more, do you have any suggestions where they could go? If people are are interested in other writing I've done about guide dogs and the guide dog experience, I have a series of columns and blogs on my personal website, which is dennyelliott.com. Can you spell that? D-E-N-I-E-L-L-I-O-T-T dot com. I wrote a piece recently for a website called The Conversation, which talks about some of the issues of traveling with a guide dog and disability. Now that link is way too long to speak, but it will be in the show notes. If people want to contact you, is there a way they could do that? Sure. They can send me an email. I would love to hear from folks and hear about their experiences. It would be really helpful in the writing I'm doing right now. I'm working on a book on ethics and guide dogs. My email address is Elliot, E-L-L-I-O-T-T, at U-S-F dot E-D-U. And that's USF as in University of South Florida. So if you didn't manage to capture all of that from the audio, as usual, you can find all of that information and more in the show notes associated with this episode at www.eyesonsuccess.net. And I wanted to remind people, if you enjoy listening to Eyes on Success, there are several ways you can listen. And if you don't want to miss an episode, for example, you can subscribe to the podcast almost any place you find your podcast. There's also another interesting way you can listen to Eyes on Success these days. If you tell your smart speaker to play the Eyes on Success podcast, you'll miraculously hear the Eyes on Success podcast. So try that out. It's kind of fun. That's it for show number 2028. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be speaking with Christina Jones, who refers to herself as the blind soprano. She is a dramatic coloratura soprano, which according to her means she sings high and she sings loud. And 
actually she sings beautifully and she focuses on opera performance and teaching singing to other students of voice. And we will speak with her about her training and her professional experiences. And she was really enjoyable to talk with. So I hope you'll join us for that next week. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy, and distributed by WXXI Reach Out Radio. You can access the full archive of previous shows, subscribe to the podcast, and much more by going to our website, www.eyesonsuccess.net. If you have questions about anything you've heard on the show or have suggestions for future shows, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. Thank you for listening and have a nice day.